a video surveillance camera recorded over 20 people, over 20 people who passed by Hugo Talayak's as he lay on a sidewalk in Queens, New York, early on a Sunday morning in 2010. Taliax had gone to the aid of a, a young girl who was being mugged. The mugger let the girl go, turned on Taliax, stabbed him, and then fled. Taliax chased his assailant, but almost immediately he fell to the ground on, on the sidewalk. In an hour and a half, no one stopped to help him. No one called 911. One man turned his body over twice and then walked away. Another man pulled out his phone, took a picture with it, and then he too walked away. Firefighters found his body when they were responding to another call. Why did no one help? Human behavior experts call it the bystander effect or diffusion effect. It's a phenomenon that takes place when people don't respond in an emergency situation because they believe someone else will do it for them. The director of Emory University Center for Ethics said that he hesitates to criticize those who, who pass by the body because though we imagine that we would have stopped Studies show that in these situations, most people don't. Now, we think we have the answer here because, you know, those New Yorkers, Yankees, carpetbaggers, of course they pass by. But how do you explain seminary students preparing to be pastors themselves? Unbeknownst to them, a group of students were put to the Good Samaritan Test become famous. You can still find it in psychology journals. But they were told as part of this study that they had to give an impromptu talk on the Good Samaritan. But they had to give the talk at a building across campus and that they should hurry because they were late. Now, as they passed from one building to another, there was a man who was planted there and he was slumped over and he was obviously in distress. And when each student passed, the man moaned and he coughed. (laughs) twice. 90%, 90% of the students passed him by without helping him. One student on his way to talk about the Good Samaritan stepped over his body so he wouldn't be late. The study highlights the difference, the difference between how good we believe ourselves to be and how good we actually are when the time comes in our life to help someone else, but our own lives And our own needs get in the way. See, we can't just believe that we are responsible for other people. We have to be responsible for other people. We have to realize that being theologically aligned with the requirement to show compassion and mercy to others doesn't necessarily mean that we will show mercy and compassion to others. If it's going to happen, If we're going to be merciful, if we're going to be compassionate, we're going to have to be intentional about it. And it will probably require that we pray a prayer similar to one Jesus prayed. Father, not my will, but your will be done. Because our wills are pretty clear in our lives, aren't they? Most of the time, our will is for ourselves, 
and for those near to us. And so we've got to ask the Lord to move us beyond our own wills, to help us change the rhythms of our lives, the priorities of our lives, the the patterns of our lives, to be responsible for others. We have to ask the Lord to open our eyes to the need around it, and when we see it, not to be indifferent to it. You and I are called by God to be responsible for each other. And that's what I want us to talk about this morning as we come to Deuteronomy chapter 22, reading just a few verses. But I'm going to ask you to stand as we hear read together the word of the living God. Deuteronomy chapter 22, beginning in verse 1, this is the word of the Lord. If you see your brother's ox or sheep straying, do not ignore it, but be sure to take it back to him. If the brother does not live near you, or if you do not know who he is, take it home with you and keep it until he comes looking for it. Then give it back to him. Do the same if you find your brother's donkey or his cloak or anything he loses. Do not ignore it. If you see your brother's donkey or his oxen fallen on the road, do not ignore it. Help him get it to its feet. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask again that you would open our eyes to see and our ears to hear and our hearts to understand your truth. Lord, we know that your word is truth. Thank you. Thank you for it. Thank you for guiding our lives through it. Thank you for revealing yourself through it. And we pray now, Spirit of God, that you would change us by your truth as we submit ourselves to your word now in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. As we begin to look at this passage this morning, we first have to understand why it is that we're going to have to be intentional and why it is we're going to have to be prayerful if we are really going to embrace this command to be responsible for other people. It isn't going to come naturally for us or to us. And the 10th question The 10th question recorded in Scripture tells us why. How many of you know what the 10th question recorded in Scripture is? What? I didn't know either. I had to count this week. (laughs) But I knew the first question. I knew the first question recorded in uh, Scripture is one asked by Satan. He asked Eve, did the Lord really say to you not to eat of the tree? The knowledge of good and evil. The next eight questions all come from God. After Adam and Eve sin, you know, God says, Adam, where are you? Uh, Who told you you were naked? Uh, Did you eat of the tree I commanded you not to eat? And then we come finally to the 10th question recorded in Scripture. But the 10th question recorded in Scripture is important because it's the first question. The first question in recorded human history of a question that a human being asks. Firsts always get our attention. So what kind of question should get this honor? This first place, blue ribbon, gold medal honor, being the first question asked of a human being in human history. I want it to be something like, Lord, why are you so amazing? Why are you so awesome? That'd be a great first question, wouldn't it? Or maybe a question asked from one human to the other, maybe Adam and Eve, you know, why is it that God has allowed us and given us the capacity to experience this thing called love? Well, you know, so something sweet like that, in my opinion, should have the, the honor of being the first question recorded. But God, 
his choice was different from mine. He allowed that first place question to go to, to be a different kind. It's a question that exposes something deep in the human heart that should not be there. It exposes something that is against God's will for his people and something that can only change by the truth and the spirit of God. And so here it is. The 10th question and the first human question is, am I my brother's keeper? First question asked by a human, am I my brother's keeper? And the same word used for keeper here is used in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. It says, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. To take care of it. That's what it means to be someone's keeper, to take care of them. Now, you know the story about this question. Cain asks the question of God in response to God's question to him. Cain, where is your brother Abel? And you know that story. Cain has just murdered his brother Abel. And so perhaps by some incredibly long shot, Cain believes that God doesn't know that he just murdered his brother. And so when God asks, where is your brother Abel? Cain plays dumb. I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Am I responsible to take care of my brother? And the question immediately reveals the divergent views, God's view and human view of being responsible and taking care of other people. Cain must have expected that God would accept the answer, no, no, I don't know where my brother is and that should be okay with you, God, because I'm not my brother's keeper. But I don't suppose God would have asked Cain where his brother is if God didn't expect Cain to know the answer. If he did not view Cain as responsible to take care of his brother. So from the beginning of human history, God has expected people to take care of and be responsible from each other, for each other. And from the beginning of human history, we see that people have avoided or shirked that responsibility. And so it's very telling about the inclination of our hearts toward self and not toward others. But let's say for the sake of argument, let's say that you do not believe that this is really the word of God. Let's just say that you don't believe that it is uh, divinely inspired or divinely authored. You just say, well, it's a piece of literature. And you can't deny that. It's a piece of literature. And it's been around for thousands and thousands of years. And so you say it's just of purely human origin. Well, if the Bible is of human origin and it's written to explain creation and procreation and marriage and why there are thorn and thistles and why snakes crawl on their bellies, isn't it interesting that the author, the human author of this book, decided that he needed to write a story from the very beginning to explain why it is in human experience that people would rather not be responsible for one another. Because it's a reality. You and I know that the Bible is the inspired word of God. It's an errant. It reveals the truth about God. It reveals the truth about ourselves. And, and if an attitude of apathy 
towards others stands at the beginning of human history, you and I shouldn't be surprised if we find that same attitude right now and everywhere in between. And we should expect to find that attitude throughout the course of human history until the Lord returns. We are responsible for each other. Now look in verse 1. Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 1. It says there, If you see your brother's ox or sheep straying, and then the rest of the verse. The word brother that's used there doesn't mean like blood, flesh and blood brother. It means a member of the covenant community. So think about it. If the covenant community at this time numbers in the millions of people, and it did, chances are that you may not even know the person. You've never met the person that God calls on you to help and be responsible for. So you and I have to eliminate from our criteria of those that we are going to help having to first know them. No, we may not know the person that God calls on us to help. So you and I could say, well, then, we don't have to know them, but they do have to be part of God's covenant community. We just take care of other people of faith. Well, that's not going to work either. Because the same commandment is given in Exodus chapter 23, and it reads this way. If you come across your enemy's ox or donkey wandering off, Be sure to return it. If you see the donkey of someone who hates you fallen down under its load, do not leave it there. Be sure to help them with it. So it's pretty broad, isn't it? We're responsible not just for people that we know, but people that we don't know, and not just people in the covenant community of faith and people we like. We're responsible for people who may hate us, for people who may be our enemies, and for the people of Israel, people who were their enemies. We're outside the covenant community of faith. They, they came from other nations. And that's the place that Jesus takes us to in the story of the Good Samaritan. You know, the expert in the law, the religious expert, comes to Jesus and he says, What must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, Jesus responds with the question, What does the law say? And he says, Well, the law says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says, Correct. You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. The law expert asks a follow-up question. Well, who is my neighbor? Now look, that's his cane heart. His cane heart is exposed. Because in asking the question, this man was trying to limit the people for whom he was responsible. In other words, who who might I not be responsible for? Lord. If his heart had been right before God, he would have asked, what do I do to love my neighbor instead of whom am I required to love? And so Jesus goes on to tell the story of the Good Samaritan, the man who was beaten and stripped and left for dead. The Jewish priest passed him by, the Levite passes him by, but the Samaritan stopped and helped him and got him the care that he needed. So Jesus asked, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the beaten man? And the expert in the law said, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus said, go and do likewise. So look what Jesus did in this famous story. He redefined neighbor. Actually, he just recaptured the true meaning of neighbor. 
And he crossed national boundaries. He crossed affinity boundaries because Samaritans and Jews hated each other. A neighbor isn't necessarily someone from your own race or your own country or someone that you know or like. A neighbor, according to Jesus, is someone who shows mercy. And so if we're asking the question, am I my brother's keeper? The answer is yes. And if we're defining brother or neighbor, it's just people, period. We never get to stray very far from John three sixteen. For God so loved the world, the world that he gave his only son. You and I, we are responsible for others. So let's keep moving through these brief verses. See, not only that we are responsible and who we're responsible for, but what is the scope of that responsibility? See, we aren't responsible for people just in the spectacular moments, the life or death moments, the devastating flood moments. Beautiful stories are already coming out about how people have helped one another uh, in this recent flood. Chris Mintz, you probably saw him on the news. He took responsibility for others by taking seven bullets in his own body to protect other people in the shooting at that college in Oregon two weeks ago. And I hope, and I know you hope, that we would all spring to action in situations like that. But those moments don't happen very often. What is this flood being called? You know, the thousand year storm. <laughs> Thank you, Lord, I didn't live during that thousand years. You know, it happens once every thousand years. These verses call us to be responsible in the very mundane, routine events of daily life. A straying ox or sheep, a lost cloak or any other lost item. That happens in my house at any given day, any given hour. We are responsible for each other. And it isn't your lucky day when you find a straying sheep $100 bill laying on the floor. <laughs> no. In that moment, you become responsible. When you find the animal, you're responsible for it. You have to take time out of your schedule to take that animal back home to its owner. And if you don't know who the owner is, if the owner doesn't live near you, you have to take care of the animal until the owner comes looking for it. You didn't ask for that responsibility, but here it is. You're responsible, God said so. If the donkey or the ox falls down, it's heavy laden because it's got, got this heavy load. It can't get up on its own. Its owner can't even pull it up. It's too heavy. So you in that moment are responsible. You saw it happen. You go help. You may not have asked for the responsibility, but there it is in front of you. You're responsible. God says so. God states his theme of responsibility three times here, three times in four verses. Look in verse one, do not ignore it. The end of verse three, do not ignore it. The end of verse four, do not ignore it. The Hebrew word translated for it, do not ignore it is literally translated hide or conceal. And that's a much more vivid picture for us. Don't hide yourself from these situations. Don't conceal yourself. How easy to look and see, here's someone in need and just slowly 
you know, we move toward our front door. Inconspicuously, we go in and slowly we shut the door so no one notices. And we pull down the blinds so that we don't have to see the need around us. And we turn up the television so we don't have to hear the need that's around us. And yes, the same verb can be translated cover the ear to conceal yourself or to cover your ears. I don't want to see, Lord. I don't want to hear, Lord. I don't want to get involved. But God calls us to be involved in each other's lives. And it costs us to be involved in each other's lives, to care for them. And sometimes there's no reward or recognition for taking care of other people. And when you and I want to ignore the need around us, when we want to ignore the need around us. It's time for a heart check. It's time for us to consider if we truly understand the gospel and what Jesus has done for us. If we want to hide ourselves from injustice and oppression and hunger and homelessness and nakedness, how is it that we can truly love God, the God of justice and compassion, and ignore these situations around us. You and I have got to do what God commands and love what he loves. I'm telling you, if I see my own children, now as adults, if I see them doing what I taught them to do over and over when they were children, or if I see them loving what I loved as they were growing up, I don't care what it is, antique cars. If my kids love antique cars like I love antique cars, it pleases me. It makes me happy. I don't love my kids more if they love antique cars. I don't love them less if they love them or buy one from themselves that has nothing to do with it. But when they do what I did and taught them to do and value what I value, it makes me happy. I'll say, that a girl? That a boy? Ah, that's how Baileys do it. So if I'm pleased, when my children reflect my imperfections, How pleased must our Father in heaven be when you and I reflect his values, when we do what he wants us to do, and when we love what he he himself loves? Yeah, that's what my children do. It's called the complacent love of God. There's your uh, your theological concept for this week. You can jot it down. The complacent love of God come with complacent pleasure, with pleasure. Francis Turretin was a 15th century, 15th century theologian in Geneva. He was born just a few decades after John Calvin died in Geneva, and he studied theology in Geneva and Leiden and Utrecht and Paris and other places, and he became the the professor of theology at Geneva. You know, in the PCA, you got to give a good biography or nobody's going to listen to you. This guy's legit. This guy is legit. And he wrote a book like Calvin called The Institutes. And his book was used even at Princeton Theological Seminary up until the end of the 19th century. Anyway, this is what Turretin writes. A threefold love of God is commonly held. Or rather, there are three degrees of one and the same love. First, there is the love of benevolence by which God willed good to the creature from eternity. Second, the love of beneficence by which 
God does good to the creature in time, according to his will. Third, the love of complacency, by which God delights himself in the creature on account of the rays of his image seen in them. Isn't that beautiful? The love of God beaming on us as he sees the rays of his image reflected in us. By the love of benevolence, he loved us before we were in eternity. By the love of beneficence, he loves us as we are. And by the love of complacency, he loves us when we are. Samuel Rutherford, maybe you know his name. Another theologian, a theologian. This one's Scottish, Presbyterian. He's legit too, lived at the same time. He wrote this, our own good works cannot make our Lord love us less or more with the love of eternal election, but they may make God love us more with the love of complacency and a sweeter manifestation of God in the fruits and gracious effects of his love. Beautiful. What are you and I doing with our lives? If we're not emanating the rays of God's image, what more important thing could we do? And what what could be better? What could be better than experiencing more, more of the love of God, the complacent love of God, by doing what he has called us to do, by making what is important to him important to us. And what's important to him? The poor, the hungry, the homeless, the widows, the orphans, the strangers, the oppressed, the enslaved, those who can't find justice. Jesus famously said in Matthew 25, for I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. And then the righteous, those who live right and seek to do right, the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you in any of these situations? Then Jesus, the king, will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for the least of one of these, my brothers or sisters, you did for me. See, we are responsible for each other. And we cannot hide or conceal ourselves from the need around us. Shut our eyes, close the door, cover our ears. There's poverty and homelessness and injustice all around us. So what should we do about it? This is the point where everybody expects the pastor, okay, tell us what to do. What's the answer? What are we supposed to do about this? Well, that's a hard question to answer. But I think that a good starting point for for us at Redeemer is to realize that, that this, see what we're doing right now, what we call worship, it's not enough. It's vitally important. Please hear me. Worship is vitally important. It feeds our souls 
It nourishes us spiritually. We cannot do without worship. It's the most wonderful thing we do on earth is to give worship sincerely and from the heart to, to the Lord. But this isn't all. And if this is all that we are doing, then we're truncated. We have a great root. We have a great root in loving and worshiping the Lord. But we're not yet producing this fruit that God calls us to produce in our lives. And so we can start producing that fruit just by opening our eyes and opening our ears and looking around us and listening to what's going on around us. And the needs that God shows us as we look and listen are most likely the needs that God would have us address. Secondly, I think we can remember that we are not lone rangers. Instead, you and I are a family on mission together. You and I don't have to go it alone or carry the guilt of doing it all on our own. We're not supposed to go it alone. Look in Scripture for yourself. I don't care where you turn. Old Testament, New Testament, this is not an individualistic book. It's a book about community. The community of faith in the Old Testament, a thing called the church in the New Testament. And so when you and I are meeting together as a family, not only here, but in our community groups as well, I think we can be open and transparent. It's a good place to start. When we come together, we can just confess our apathy if we are apathetic, and we certainly aren't all apathetic. But we can confess it if we are, and we can pray with each other, and we can pray for each other and ask God to change that. We can confess before each other that we just feel helpless. We don't know where to start. There's so much need around us. What in the world are we to do? That's a good place to start. Lord, we're feeling helpless. We don't know what to do, but we are willing. Lord, you show us. We're praying. We're before you. Show us how to be responsible for each other and for our community. Because God is for us. Do you remember that? He's for us. And he's with us. And he wants the poor fed and the naked clothed and injustice stopped. He wants that more than we do. And so he established the church to do something about these issues. So he'll lead us and he'll show us. That should comfort us. Because Jesus has been where we are. He looked and saw great need. That's the truth. Our great need. And when he saw our great need, he didn't ignore it. Jesus did not shut the doors of heaven against it so that he didn't have to look at our miserable condition and not be bothered by it. And Jesus did not distract himself with the unimaginable splendor and perfection of heaven and how easy that would have been for him to do. It's such a glorious place for all eternity. But he didn't remain ensconced in the absolute perfection and glorious life of heaven. No. What did Jesus do? He acted. And he took responsibility for our sin. Yours and mine. You know this. Jesus loves human beings so much that he became one himself. He joined his 
perfect divinity with humanity. And he was compelled to take upon himself the responsibility for our lost condition. His love drove him to do something about our hopelessness and our helplessness. And so he took upon himself the responsibility of correcting it, as Scripture says, of carrying our sin and carrying our burdens and giving us help and bringing us hope. I hope you know that to be the truth this morning. Your only hope and your only help is in Christ. Because he loves you. Whatever your need is, he saw it. You're helpless, you're hopeless, and he did something about it because he loves you. So all you have to do is say, here, take this load, take this burden, this sin away from it. And he'll do it because he loves you. We've got to respond to that kind of love that deserves a response from us. And the response is not one of self-indulgence. Oh, thank you, Lord, for loving me. We do thank the Lord for loving me, 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 Lord. Thank you for loving me. We've got to ask the Lord to move us beyond ourselves, beyond the position of always receiving, receiving, receiving. Give me more, give me more, give me more. To move us beyond ourselves. A response of saying that by God's design, I acknowledge that I, I acknowledge that we as a church are responsible for others. We must act on their behalf. If we as believers in Christ are not responsible, who is? If it's not our job, whose job is it? And how can you and I better make a difference for Jesus' sake in this place where he's planted us? How can we better make a difference than to be prayerful people and intentional people about helping those around us than by making changes in our lives, in our schedules, in our priorities that will allow us to be responsible for other people. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, once again, your word is clear to us the commands you place on our lives, which we remember from your word this morning, are not burdensome. Your commands are not burdensome, Lord. Instead, they are a means to to know you. They're a means to experience the fullness of life as you intend us to experience it. Or they're a means for us to experience your complacent love and the joy of living life as you intend us to live it, the the joy of helping others and making a difference in this world for your sake. So I pray, Lord, that you would do your work. So many hearts here, so many in different different places, Lord. There there are those here whose lives and hearts are so eager to make a difference in the city of Charleston, in the lives of the, the homeless, in the lives of the poor, in the lives of those who don't experience justice even in this city. Thank you for them, Lord. Continue to fan that flame within them and, Lord, continue to open their eyes or open their eyes in a new way to how it is that they can 
within this covenant community be responsible for those around us. Or there are hearts here that are truly apathetic, who see the need and ignore the need. Or there are those here this morning maybe who just do church. It's what I do at Sunday mornings at 10.30 or 11 o'clock, and that's the end of it. Well, I pray that by your spirit you would convict them that uh, there's so much more to knowing you and loving you than that. We do commit ourselves to you now, Lord, and to your truth, and pray that, Lord, we are just so intentional now in praying and asking you to help us make a difference in this city and then around the world for Jesus' sake. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.